I'm your health coach, Melissa Lee. Here at Thriving with Nourishment Health, I provide women with the resources to reclaim fertility and celebrate periods through the lens of functional medicine. It is time to empower ourselves with natural solutions over band-aid medicines. We will get to the root cause of symptoms to see the bigger picture. Let us find the ability to heal ourselves, get back to Mother Nature, and live in a healthier world. Hi everyone, say hi to Dr. Sarah Norris. She's a licensed naturopathic doctor specializing in women's health and pediatrics. In addition to her clinical practice, Dr. Norris provides lectures for conventional medical and osteopathic doctors on top of natural medicine. I'm happy to have her on the show today to answer some of your very common questions when it comes to PCOS and fertility. I feel like these questions I've gotten a lot of and I just compiled them together and there's no better person to ask than, you know, Dr. Norris. So welcome. All right. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to, you know, bring this information forth for everybody because these are such common questions I get in the clinic as well. And, you know, although not everybody, depending on where they live, can access a naturopathic doctor like myself or financially can access someone like me, it's great to be able to provide this kind of information so that they can bring this back to mm-hmm. someone like you or the primary care doctors or gynecologists so we can kind of get get a good team going for each person. Yeah, for sure. Um, before I get into the questions, mm-hmm. could you just tell everyone who's listening in case they don't know what a naturopathic doctor is and how that is different from a conventional doctor? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. So a naturopathic doctor, basically there are medical schools specific for naturopathic medicine. So they're set up in the same way as any medical school. You've got to get your undergrad degree. You you know you go into pre-medicine studies, and then you come into medical school. It's a four-year school. The difference between a naturopathic medical school and a typical medical school where you receive an MD doctorate is that the in the first two years of medical school, you're doing all of your kind of basics in medicine doing cadaver labs and biochemistry and anatomy and physiology and pharmacology, but you're also doing about two years of studies in herbal medicine, you're getting foundations in nutrition, and you're also being taught about homeopathic medicine. And so, and then the last two years of studies, not only are you continuing on with the didactics in the um, academic field in lectures, but you're also doing clinical rotations, but just in primary care. So instead of rotating through endocrinology and gastroenterology and doing these different rotations and particularly, especially in hospital settings, this is really where you're doing rotations just in primary care. So, you know, when I was 22 and looking in a medical school, naturopathic medicine to me was really what every primary care doctor should be, because at least in my opinion, because I felt like doctors should be able to offer those pharmaceuticals and natural solutions. So that's what I bring to the table for my patients. I think that's what is so beautiful about naturopathic medicine is it's not a pharmaceuticals are always bad and natural medicine is always good because, you know, unfortunately the reality is that the truth lies in that gray space. And sometimes conventional medicine is really necessary and using pharmaceuticals is needed. And, you know, but there's a lot of beautiful options within natural medicine too. 
That's really cool. I actually didn't know the part about rotating, like the differences in yeah. rotation. Um, yeah. I, so I studied medical sciences in the university yeah. and I, you know, I wanted to become a doctor, but I didn't go to medical school because I was like, I don't need another four years <laughs> of study. But I felt like, you know, naturopathy is really like a really good balance between both, as you said, and it's right. not just yeah. shunning one area right. of medicine but. right and the different you know the difference is like here you know here in the united states like this you this is kind of what like medical schools look like in places like germany and that's where a lot of the foundations came over from when naturopathic medicine was you know first being taught in medical schools like in the early 20th century and then um you know we've, we've that's gone to the wayside as we've advanced more of the pharmaceutical studies and i think it's coming back so mm-hmm. i'd love to see this is what all mds get in terms of training unfortunately that's not hitting our medical schools in general yet. Yeah. Um, and, and then for naturopathic doctors, depending on where someone lives, they may not have, you know, very many naturopathic doctors working in their state or in their city. And this is really because that licensure varies from state by state. So a naturopathic doctor in California is, you know, recognized as a doctor, is a primary care provider, but in, you know, a neighboring, in our na- some of our neighboring states and across the country, they may not have licensure to order labs right. at all. So they still have the same training. So if you're calling, if you're calling yourself a naturopathic doctor, that denotes that you've got someone who went to this naturopathic medical school, passed boards, did clinicals with, in person with patients. Okay, got it. Yeah. Yeah. So now that we know like what kind of doctor you are um, and that you're very qualified to answer these questions, um, yeah. let's just jump into it. Okay, so the first one um, I got was, how do you approach women who have been recently diagnosed with PCOS and then told by you know, their gynecologist that they're not, like they're really unlikely to have a baby? Yeah. So, you know, I hear this so much and it just breaks my heart every time I hear it because I, you know, first of all, it's not a diagnosis that means you're going to have fertility concerns. And to say you have PCOS, therefore you're going to have some fertility, you know, you might have fertility problems or you will have fertility problems. It's just such an unfortunate um, way for women to be treated and by their gynecologists or by their primary care doctors. So, you know, what I start with saying is this is manageable. We have lots of options. We're going to discuss those options. And, you know, one option may be what's being presented by the gynecologist or by that doctor, which is, you know, likely that conversation was we need to get you having regular periods on birth control, when you're ready to have babies, you'll stop the birth control, you'll go through fertility Mm -hmm. treatments. Sounds like it. Yeah, and then you'll have have your babies, hopefully, right? This is kind of the counseling I hear most often. And the reality is, is that, you know, our biggest challenges are that regular ovulation and getting blood sugar under control and making sure that those androgens, those hormone levels are well balanced. And so there's a lot of things you can do naturally, just in supplements and in lifestyle changes that, um, that work as well, if not better than the pharmaceuticals. So, 
you know, my big take home is you have choices. I think of birth control as a pause button. And if we want that pause button on, no problem. We can talk a little later about like things to do while you're on birth control, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it doesn't have to be the thing that the only choice for you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do think that, I mean, I, I also got the same kind of treatment from my gynecologist, you know, going on the pill. And yeah. when I asked her, like, how long am I have to be on this thing for? And is it going to affect my fertility? And she said, you know, it's, it's not going to affect your fertility. And you have to be on this for like, the rest of your life, unless you want to have a baby. So yeah. I was like, really, really disturbed by that. Um, really inspiring that you said that, you know, we have choices and we can heal from it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this touches on this, this thing that I'm really passionate about, which is that, you know, within our current paradigm of medicine, our doctors are taking 10 to 15 minutes with each patient. And so Mm -hmm. they say, you know, probably, you know, in your instance, like with this female gynecologist, like hopefully, we know one, maybe there's a lack of knowledge and alternatives and two, maybe there was a problem in terms of timing. And so these kind of blunt responses that are, you know, can be earth shaking for women are given versus like a longer explanation as to, okay, here are the steps and here are some opportunities and here are some resources for doing something different. Okay. So what can affect fertility when someone has PCOS, I mean, aside from like an ovulation and irregular periods? Right. So, you know, we're looking at metabolic syndrome or the insulin resistance or diabetes. So we're outside of cycles and are anovulatory. So let's talk about what that looks like. So, you know, if a woman's having a period every 24 to 32 days, 90% chance that she's ovulating with having cycles at that length. If she's having a cycle 32 to 35 plus, there's a good chance that she's not ovulating. And so 10 to 15% of women overall who are having irregular cycles are, are, are an ovulatory, not having ov- regular ovulation. The um, On the what can you do when you're already what can you do if you're already having regular cycles or what are we thinking about elsewise is looking at those androgens. So testosterone, DHEA sulfate, um, sex hormone binding globulin, which affects the testosterone levels. And then looking at how do we manage blood sugar because we know that it can be that elevation in androgens or those irregularities in blood sugar, we get those things under control. And a lot of times we can get those periods regular. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are important components always. Yeah, very good. I I like the whole concept of like managing the blood sugar. I feel like that is something really easy to throw out there about blood sugar, but like it really, really plays a big role in the hormones. Yeah, I you know what I like to say is this diagnosis is not anyone, it's not her fault, it's not your fault, it's genetics, right? And so that doesn't mean that it's your parents' fault either. This is, mm-hmm. you know, this plays a role. There are probably, there's a lot of things we don't know about it, right? So there's something about genes and how that got passed down and, you know, maybe something in regards to environmental influences on the mom while pregnant and the foods, you know, foods she was consuming then, or chemicals she was you know, getting exposed to at that time. We don't know, you know, Mm. in a solid way yet 
all those all those factors. But when you have a diagnosis of PCOS, it just means you have to be the person who's going to have to work a little bit harder than the next person on your blood sugar management. So that means more of an emphasis emphasis on vegetables, less on the carbohydrates, more regular on the exercise. And it's mm-hmm. not, and those are great things that are a cornerstone for all of our wellness. It's just going to show up when things, when, you know, you're off balance and you have that diagnosis of PCOS, the symptoms are going to show sooner that you're okay. off balance. Yeah. yeah, good to know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, besides lifestyle habits, like what kind of lab testing should a woman get if she's thinking of conceiving later or she just found out she has PCOS? I think that's a, this is a big one because like, right, like some of the tests that they get is like not enough. So, right. And the, you know, and the diagnostic criteria for PCOS has changed, right? So you have a lot of women who are told, you know, by even recently by their doctors that they have PCOS with all with only meeting one diagnostic criteria. And so they maybe actually got incorrectly diagnosed um, or um, they didn't get, you know, they were just told, oh, you probably have PCOS, no labs, maybe even we're done. And that happens, I see that all the time. And so let's start with reviewing what are the labs that you would use to diagnose PCOS. So mm-hmm. you would check androgen levels. We talked about that earlier. So test total testosterone, free testosterone, DHEA sulfate, and then sex hormone binding globulin, which can help us figure out that free testosterone number. Um, we want to take a look at um, a pelvic ultrasound. That's the one of, you know, you can have three, you need two of three for a diagnostic criteria of PCOS. So high androgens, um, that classic look of string of pearls or multiple cysts on both ovaries related to PCOS on that pelvic ultrasound. And then um, taking a look at what the, whether, what, what's happening in terms of their cycles. And we used to take a look at LH FSH ratios in regards to oh, when the LH is double the FSH, then we have a diagnostic criteria. But now we don't look at that anymore. So I still like to take a look at LH, FSH, progesterone, estrogen. But in order to make that diagnosis, we're looking at irregular cycles, testosterone, progesterone, and or symptoms of that hirsutism. So unwanted mm-hmm. hair growth in places like our upper lip, our chin, our low back, or around our belly buttons. What a, so like you mentioned the all the testing for the hormones. Um, <laughs> would you recommend a Dutch test for that, or is it just like a normal like serum or blood test? Yeah, I usually do serum. So okay. I love Dutch testing. I think of Dutch testing more often when I'm having trouble, like fine, you know, fine tuning, like I'm not getting, I'm not getting the benefits that I expected with the things that we're doing lifestyle wise or supplement wise, that's when I'll really bring in the Dutch testing. So typically what I would do, like if we're talking about, so now we're going past like, all right, we're, you have PCOS, we've made that diagnosis. Like what's, you know, how are things going in terms of fertility? you know, are, you know, are we want, do we want to, you're 35, do we want to talk about like, um, where is it going to be perimenopause very soon? Mm -hmm. Your fertility levels look good. Those are going to be things like 
testing your AMH level, your estrogen on day three of your cycle. And then I like testing progesterone in the like post ovulation. So mm-hmm. day 21 of your period or six to eight days after ovulation. So the Dutch testing is wonderful because you've got that testing throughout the month to really show you what's happening in terms of that rhythm of hormones. But, you know, you can get, you can gather a lot of information from regular serum labs that you can run through your insurance. And Mm -hmm. ultimately if some, I'll do Dutch testing if someone, um, I guess, again, we're having trouble kind of figuring out what's happening. Their cycles are pretty irregular, but most of the time I find that the expense of the Dutch testing isn't worth it on the get-go, especially if we've got good insurance coverage to order those regular labs. Right. Yeah, that's true. I was actually, when I asked you that question, I was thinking, yeah, but the Dutch test is kind of pricey. Like right. it's not like a everyday your go-to test. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful test. It's just the cost of it is unnecessary for a lot of women if we're just if we're trying to establish like right like a baseline right do you also have estrogen dominance do you also have progesterone Mm. deficiencies those kind of things can be done with well-timed out you know hormones as well and then of course we're looking at things like your fasting insulin and fasting glucose and hemoglobin Mm. a1c and you know the uh I mean, that list can go on and on. I will typically take a look at adrenals and thyroid on top of kind of your standard panels for PCOS. So your adrenal glands, as you know, are, you know, those are the glands that live on top of our kidney. They respond to our stress, like, you know, they respond to stress and they also run our normal circadian rhythm. And so I will do things like Dutch testing or there's some other companies who do like that salivary testing to see what my circadian, what the circadian rhythm looks like throughout the day on that cortisol, because the core, you know, the adrenal glands, the thyroid and the ovaries are like a three-legged stool. And when that, one of those legs of that stool gets off, you Mm -hmm. can start expressing more symptoms. So, you know, pretty classically, you can have women who have secondary amenorrhea who, you know, were getting regular periods, all of a sudden they stop getting periods. And it's because they've been, you know, doing intense workouts or going through some really high stress and mm-hmm. it's not actually a diagnosis of PCOS. Or not um, eating enough carbs. Yeah, or not eating enough carbs, right? Like they're they're putting their body through the stress and they're and so they're, you know, they get this signal from that like hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access, where it's like our whole stress kind of response, mm-hmm. and the body says don't ovulate right now because there's some major sympathetic stressor going on. And the last thing we want to do is carry a baby. And so that adrenal testing can really help us determine, okay, is there a component from adrenal fatigue or chronic overstress currently? And then looking at the thyroid, I love to do a TSH free T4, free T3. So when women come in and see me, I'm doing that whole battery of labs Mm -hmm. typically get going if if it hasn't already been done already because we're looking at a whole person you know we're not just a diagnosis of PCOS we are we are a whole person and when as whole people when we feel better our periods our hormones typically come into line with it too and so does our blood sugar that's great I mean I think you know your approach you know as a naturopathic doctor is you know very similar to an integrative or a functional doctor too is always looking at the whole person yeah 
um so that's great so like you mentioned earlier if like you know someone it depends if someone is in her early 30s or late 30s Mm-hmm. So this leads me to the next question. If someone is in her early 30s, but is thinking of conceiving, but she has PCOS, when would actually be a good time to think about freezing her eggs? Yeah, yeah. This is coming up more and more. Right. So I graduated medical school in 2010, and freezing eggs was still considered experimental until 2012. <laughs> and so, and then definitely, you know, I started practicing in Los Angeles uh, in 2017. And so, you know, moving, living in a large city, living in an area where, you know, you, we, I, there are definitely trends that are, have been seen where, I mean, across the country as women, we are starting to conceive later on in life, right? Mm -hmm. And so, concept of freezing eggs or this possibility of freezing eggs is becoming more and more um, promoted even like some of the some of the large employers here in LA are doing you know paying for that for free for the females in their practice females and that work for them and so Mm -hmm. quick answer to that question is if you think you want to have babies and you are 37 that is seems to be based on the based on the information to date, that seems to be the best like decide by age date. Now that 37. doesn't- 37. Okay. Yep. So we know from research, our fertility is best in our twenties. We start seeing a reduction in quantity of eggs and quality of eggs somewhere around age 32, 33. And so really the earlier, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who's interested in freezing eggs, you know, reproductive endocrinologists are the specialists you want to talk to. Oftentimes they will do many practices, will do free talks about this just to kind of give you some information because the process really looks like IVF, literally exactly the same. You're doing hormones for a week or two. You're trying to get a whole bunch of eggs and then each egg that's retrieved has about a 5%, five to 8% um, success rate in pregnancy. And mm-hmm. so the goal is trying to get like 10 to 20 of them. But again, like this is considered experimental until 2012. And so there's a lot we don't know about the freezing egg process. And, you know, we'll learn more as time goes on. But anybody who is, you know, 37 or, or older, you know, that's something to think about. And we know that it's an option to preserve those eggs that are, you know, the, the younger we are, unfortunately, you know, I had my babies in my thirties. So I got all these kind of conversations from my mm-hmm. gynecologists and reproductive endocrinologists around, well, you're 36 now and it's, you know, now right. you're pediatric pregnancy and it's such an awful thing to hear as a female, but also for us to be aware of that, you know, men's you're in a heterosexual relationship, men's fertility doesn't go down until their 50s, typically, but ours starts declining at 33, 32, or mm. 32, 33. That's really good info. Yeah. Um, another thing that's coming up for me is that when I think about egg freezing for PCOS women, it's like, yeah. you know, maybe some of us, we have been not, we've not been ovulating. So doesn't that theoretically mean that we have more eggs I guess than usual, like than the average. And then yeah. so if I, if like we're thinking about egg freezing, then that would be a good 
think. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it really depends. Like, unfortunately, it's not, you know, you're, you're, so you have all the eggs that you're ever going to have in your lifetime when you're in utero. And so the issue can be more at that point, like more the quality versus right. the quantity, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, hopefully it does mean higher quantity numbers, but you're, you know, you're up against quantity and quality and there's not really an effective way to measure quality of eggs. We can only really measure how many are left. And that's what that mm-hmm. AMH level on day three or going and doing an ultrasound with a reproductive endocrinologist on day three of your cycle can tell you is like, do I have a lot of eggs? Am I like, are things great? And you know, hopefully they are. And the hormones, it's the hormone treatment to get those eggs, to get a robust number of eggs more than typical that can be really difficult in the egg freezing process, not to mention the expense of mm-hmm. retrieval and then implantation. Right. So if someone is in like a dilemma, you would just, you know, kind of get them to talk to a reproductive endocrinologist and find yeah. out more about it. Because yeah. I do know some women who are like, they're not in a, you know, they're trying to find like the, the guy that they want to be with. Right. So it's sometimes I feel like it is a really confusing, like, thing to think about. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it's a one of these hard decisions that only you can make for yourself, but getting more, getting as much information into your hands is helpful. So, you know, like, okay, this is what the process, this is what's going to cost. This is what the process is going to look like. This is what Mm -hmm. the success rate is. You know, this idea that freezing your eggs is an insurance policy is really, you know, that's all PR more than, um, or not PR, but marketing, I guess would be a better way of explaining it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because it's still, it's, you know, it's still, it's still tricky. It's still not guaranteed. So if someone has PCOS and is trying to have a kid right now, but you know, it's not really working, what would you tell her? Yeah. So it depends on the age really. Okay. So if a heterosexual couple is, tr- in, is trying to conceive, the female is in her twenties and they haven't conceived in a year, at that point, it's time, it's time for workup. And these are standards through, again, a, across conventional medicine. So mm-hmm. for me, and hopefully for many doctors, you are going to have, like, you can get these, you can get labs earlier, you can get some assistance. There's nothing saying that you can't get these workups earlier, with the exception of potentially your insurance company paying for it. So a diagnosis of fertility concerns would be a female in her 20s not conceiving after a year, a female in her thir- like 30 to, let's say 30 to 40, that is like not conceiving within six months. And then in a woman in her 40s, I really like to do that, all that workup. You know, I say like, go ahead, like, like you can try to conceive naturally, no problem, mm-hmm. but three months, you're not successful. I'd like to get some labs because we know in our thirties, we have, you know, 15 to 20% chance of success each time, each month in terms of conceiving that cycle in our thirties, 10 to 15%, and then our forties, 5% per cycle. And so we just don't, you know, as we get past that age 32, 33, we just don't mess around with timing. 
if you want that answer sooner. And so sometimes like remarkably, sometimes just a conversation about timing with intercourse, once a heterosexual couple can make all the difference, even mm. if they've been trying for many months up to a year, I've seen, I've seen that make all the difference. So sometimes just having a conversation, but those are the standards of one year in your twenties, six months in your thirties and, you know, three months, if you're not, if you haven't conceived successfully at that point, then it's time for some workup with your, with your doctor. Good to know. I, um, I actually resonate with the whole timing thing. I think because I've been reading like taking charge of your fertility, um, you know, yes. yeah, using fertility awareness method. Like I've read so many stories about like how the timing is just so important and it can really change, um, you know, everything. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Because so many women, you know, there's so many different ways to assess if you're ovulating, right? Basal body temperatures, ovulation predictor kits. And so a lot of women come in saying like, my app says I ovulated on, you know, day 14, but they, you know, maybe they've got a 32 day cycle. And so typically most often we are ovulating 14 days before we bleed and our fertility window is seven days before ovulation. And so ideally you're having sex every other day, mm -hmm. the week before ovulation. That's, right. that, that gives you the best outcomes. So how long should someone with PCOS try to have a kid before trying fertility tre treatments? Yeah, I think you know, that is really gonna be dependent on what comes up from the labs, what comes up from work, from the um, workup with their gynecologist or primary care doctor or reproductive endocrinologist. So, you know, that, that's a personal decision between of a, for an mm. individual or for a couple when, when to do it. Um, I, have, I see lots of women and lots of couples who are very anti going IVF route. They're willing to do IUI. Um, but they don't want to go into IVF. And yeah, unfortunately, I don't think that there's like a straightforward answer on yeah. that. You know, it, it, it's, um, it's a personal choice. One thing I will say is that what I see often in my heterosexual couples, like cis male, cis female, oftentimes the woman comes in, she is on top of it. She's, at, you know, taking all these supplements and doing all these wonderful things to support her body. And meanwhile, that cis male hasn't been evaluated. And, you know, we, you know, we tend to think like, okay, especially with a diagnosis like PCOS, the problem is mine, the problem, like I need to fix something. But if you've got a woman who is regularly ovulating and having regular cycles um, and blood sugar is well-managed, you know, I, regardless of all those things, I still would like to see that male mm -hmm. office because, right. you know, but half that time, the fertility issues can be because of that, because of the male component. And mm -hmm. so it's important for both, you know, before you go into something, any reproductive endocrinologist going, is going to assess the male, but before you even start thinking about like, oh, we might do IVF, mm -hmm. uh, our next step, you definitely want to be getting a semen analysis and doing regular labs. Yeah, that's a good idea. It's yeah. teamwork. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, earlier, you know, you were talking about the birth control pill. So this is a question for you. Um, so for someone with PCOS and, you know, who has been on the pill for years, what can she do to help her get in the optimal state to conceive? Yeah, yeah, I love this. So I like my preference when I have a woman who's on birth control would be, hey, you're thinking about conceiving in the next six to 12 months, like, let's go six months off of birth control before you're ready to conceive. If you're okay with doing alternative means for, you know, making sure that you don't conceive if you don't want to at that, in that like six month window. So if you're okay mm -hmm. with using condoms during that time or switching to some kind of non-hormonal birth control, like a Paragard IUD, those are, you know, those are good choices for that six month window so that we can get the mm -hmm. period regular, especially depending on age. If they're in their twenties, we can just stop and they can try and we can be doing our treatments, you know, right when they're ready to get going. Yeah. Um, but you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier around assessing blood sugar and insulin, adrenal and thyroid, and, you know, really working on all those kind of baselines of lifestyle that applies to every single, every person, right? Regular yeah. movements, regular, like regular meals, adequate protein with each, within each of those meals, you know, getting at least three cups of vegetables a day. And so in terms of what would I assess? I'd assess everything but the hormones. If someone's on birth control, you know, really your androgens are potentially going to be reduced from that birth control, depending on the type of birth control. Um, you're not ovulating on birth control, of course. So checking things like, you know, doing kind of a Dutch test or doing serum hormone levels, none of that stuff is necessary when you're on birth control, but the mm. androgens, if you're having any of those signs of acne or excess hair growth or oily skin or hair loss and something right. like that. That's a, that's a good one to note. Like, you yeah. know, if you're on the birth control, like the hormone testing is not gonna show you much. Um, right. So being suppressed. Right. Okay, so that's good to know. Um, so, you know, we've been talking a lot about like lab testing and like, um, I guess when it comes to fertility, there's also is not a one answer kind of thing because there's a lot of mental and emotions also associated yeah. with fertility, which brings me to my next question. Uh, what are the mental health pieces you've come across when it comes to seeing PCOS women who want to conceive? Yeah, you know, the um, I, I was not surprised to read in a couple studies that women with PCOS have an increased level of anxiety and depression is what I've been mm. seeing in office. It goes a lot back to, typically it will go alongside a story like you were telling me about your story and what's typical of this, like you have PCOS, you, you know, this is gonna cause some fertility issues. And so the anxiety and depression, we know statistically significant increase in anxiety and depression with women with PCOS. That does not, there's no metabolic reason that we can see uh, for that. We can only assume that it's because of these conversations and because, mm -hmm. of, because of the feelings alongside that diagnosis. Um, and then we also see an increase in eating disorders, particularly bulimia and binge eating um, associated with PCOS. And so those things you talked earlier about, like 
making sure the adrenal glands and the thyroid are, are functioning well. Well, we also want to address the whole person in terms of how our mood is functioning because, you know, when we have high stress that feels like overwhelm or feels like anxiety right. or we're depressed, like when you, those things can really influence, you know, how we eat, how we, how we move our body and all, you know, we are dynamic, beautiful beings that all that stuff plays a major role in, you know, mm. how, what shows up in terms of our fertility and how our periods are becoming regular or not. Yeah, super important. I think the beliefs that women have, you know, when they step out of the gynecologist's office, um, I've heard people telling me that they feel worthless as a woman or they can't carry out like their biological function or their role. Like it's really very, um, I can totally relate to that too. Well, and yeah, you think about like, you know, with depression, some of those symptoms are over you know overeating or lack of appetite which you know the overeating often comes with excess carbs and then that's going to make the blood sugar worse that's going to create more insulin resistance it's not that carbohydrates are bad it's Mm -hmm. you know it can often go hand in hand that what's going on in terms of those neurotransmitter productions really influences all those carbohydrate cravings and you know that kind of lack of desire and passion that we used to have right yeah okay very good um i have one last question for you um so we've been talking a lot about for like fertility blood sugar adrenal thyroid everything that could be connected to pcos Um, i think one thing we haven't touched on is gut health and this question is actually from me i've read about this but i just wanted to like throw it in there um, so what is the vaginal ecosystem and why should we care? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, we have lots of great, good bacteria and small amount of yeast all on our skin, all through the intestinal tract and into the vagina as well. Right. So we want those good things. We want those good bacteria. You know, you think about like, why do we get yeast infections vaginally? Well, that is because our good bacteria, predominantly lactobacillus levels, can be reduced and therefore it allows for a more alkaline environment where yeast thrives and then we get a yeast infection. And um, when it comes to PCOS, there's you know lots of new emerging research that's coming out on this and some really interesting stuff around like oh, maybe these particular bacteria like mycoplasma and proteus that we find vaginally, we find in women with PCOS higher prevalence than women without PCOS. So maybe there's something to say about like how these bacteria um, influence, directly influence how our blood sugar is managed and how, what those antigen levels look like. But what we've known for a really long time is that good bacteria levels, good bacteria just in general, help us metabolize through those hormones after we use them. And so we can see when bacteria is in balance or not in balance in the, in the intestines predominantly, then of course that influences vaginal. And when things are not in balance intestinally, that can cause those hormones to recirculate. So maybe you have a testosterone level that is at 40 and normal is typically considered up to 45, but, 
every time you go to detox that testosterone, which is done by your liver, and then the final process happens in the intestines, it reconjugates that testosterone and activates it again. So you recirculate it and now these levels are jumping into the 50s and 60s. And so what's going on intestinally, I think probably affects PCOS more. There's some really interesting research around the possibility of these, you know, two species so far that I know of that have been linked with PCOS. We just don't really understand the causative nature yet. Mm. Um, But, you know, ultimately some of the stuff we were just talking about in terms of neurotransmitter production and, you know, mood, ultimately, like, you know, we talk about serotonin and in relationship to treating depression and anxiety, right? Like that everybody who goes into their doctor and says, I have depression or anxiety, the first medication they're going to try is an SSRI, medication that raises serotonin. Well, 80 or 90% of our serotonin is produced in our gut. And so we can get the gut in balance in terms of those good bacteria levels, then oftentimes not everybody, that's not everybody's like keystone to how we treat it. But if we can get, you know, intestinal bacteria well-balanced, we can really influence mood, then we can, that will have some downstream impacts on hormones over and over again. And then that vaginal ecosystem is, you know, we want that good balance as a reflection of what's going on intestinally. That was a great explanation. Um, (laughs) Yes. And it also shows that, you know, all the layers are very interconnected. um, So we can't really... Like when I coach someone with PCOS, even though, you know, we work on the blood sugar levels and work on, you know, improving their nutrition, we're also, you know, improving their gut health at the same time. So it's always kind of like a two-in-one thing and it's not very, right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, naturopathic doctors, I think most of us think of the gut health as the cornerstone for a lot of our wellness, right? Because Mm -hmm. you could be eating, you know, wonderfully and if you've got diarrhea like and all and that stuff's not being absorbed you're not getting access to those new those wonderful nutrients or if yeah. you've got you know a myriad of digestive complaints can really influence how we're able to take that stuff from our food and give it give life to our body so that we yeah. feel our best so it's a good piece to think about too yeah love that okay great so, um, well, thank you for all, you know, answering all the questions. I think, you know, those are really great answers. So if someone's listening to this and they feel like, okay, like you're a great person to work with, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm in practice in the Los Angeles area. I specifically am in Pasadena, neighboring LA. Um, my website is Norris d-r-s-a-r-a norris like chuck norris n-o-r-r-i-s.com and you know with covid and all of the lifting like all you know all the malpractice and insurance companies have really lifted these previous restrictions on doing telemedicine i have a lot more flexibility in seeing somebody from out of state at this point because of some of that, because of the things that came in with COVID-19. So although most of my patients are, um, live in this area and I'm seeing, you know, virtually or in person as this last year has been, 
what has what I've noticed in the last few months is I've had patients who have tracked me down. You know, I used to practice in Vermont, and before that, I was up in Oakland, and they have tracked me down, and now I am seeing them all across the country because we've gone into this new habit of doing telemedicine um, with our doctors, which I think is a really beautiful thing when you don't yeah. have access in your area. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. Like it would be great to have, you know, access to naturopathic doctors and functional doctors um, right. to get a more holistic approach. So, well, thank you for your time today. This was great. Um, I learned a lot and hopefully, you know, the, the audience will love the answers to, your, to the questions. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me.